Scripture reading, New Testament reading. Matthew 25, 34-35. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me drink, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. This is the Old Testament reading. Ruth 2, 1 to 13. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan, clan of Elimelech, who was named by Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of eleven. And Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to his reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young men who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And he, and the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the shells after the reapers. So, so she came and she had counted from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not... Go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes go on the field that are reaping and go after this. Have I not charged you, the young man, not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what I, the young man, have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should not take notice since I am a foreigner? But Boaz said to him, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband have been fully told in me. And, I, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to people that you did not know before. The Lord will pay you for the, what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under, who, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. This is the word of the Lord. gospel from famine to harvest. Uh, last week, we examined how the gospel responds to seasons of great difficulty and trial, how God's grace extends to our bitterness, and how God is still covenantally faithful to us in the midst of our famine. And today, we begin to pivot about how this sort of central problem, the enemy of famine in the narrative of Ruth, Gets turned around. And so it starts with understanding how 
God's favor comes upon Naomi and Ruth. These two immigrants coming from the enemy land of Moab, Naomi returning back to her hometown. God's favor comes in the form of the final main character of Ruth. He's arrived, a man by the name of Boaz. And through it, it's through his treatment, his care, his compassion, that we begin to understand what the favor of God looks like in real form and how the gospel proclaims to us today God's favor. So before we begin, could, could we pray together? Father, please reveal the truth of goodness of the gospel today, that we have indeed received the favor that you provide, the protection, the love of Christ. Speak to us now the truth of your words. May your spirit, Lord, fill this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Hmm. So, today we are going to see where, or, or should I say who, pivots the story of Ruth from famine to harvest, and how God's favor dwells in our story today. And, and we'll see how God's favor coincides with the exact circumstances of not only what Ruth is going through, but what we go through. That contrary to the conditions that Ruth is experiencing in real time, she is actually closer to the favor of God than what appears on the surface. And so today we'll look at three things. One, how God's favor is toward the steadfast. Two, how God's favor is toward the sojourner. And three, how God's favor is toward the suffering. So the steadfast, the sojourner, and the suffering. So uh, before we begin this, uh, we want to highlight, the, again, the person that will be sort of the embodiment of God's favor throughout the rest of this book. All right, God's blessing, God's protection. And that comes in the arrival of this character, Boaz. His introduction in verse 1 serves as a bit of foreshadowing. He's, he's pointed to as a relative of Naomi when we thought, at least the first chapter had, had made us to believe, that Naomi's family was all but lost, hinting that his role in the family will somehow bring about the start of something beautiful and wonderful. In verse 1, he has called this phrase a worthy man. Now, this phrase for worthy man is only used prior in the age of Scripture to describe the work of another person named Gideon, this fierce warrior whom God uses to redeem Israel, many of you who might be familiar with the story of Gideon. However, if you look at the rest of Gideon's life after he redeems Israel, he's a man fraught with many issues. He does not live up, in, in essence, to the status of a worthy man. It's questioned by the end of his life as he enters into a lifestyle that would make the most corrupt politician blush. But by calling Boaz a worthy man and intentionally linking the phrase of that term to the Old Testament readers, there's a curiosity as a reader that you're going to enter into. Is Boaz going to live up to this title? Nevertheless, there's a huge sense in which you as a reader are called to form a very positive association with Boaz from the beginning. God's favor personified is going to look favorable. And we're going to witness, as we go through the rest of the sermon series, how Boaz is the anti-Gideon in the book of Ruth, what this worthy man is supposed to look like. So, Ruth comes into the picture again, she, she, and, and one of the things that we notice 
is how steadfast she is in the narrative and how God's favor is toward the steadfast. After making this beautiful covenant speech that we talked about last week, she is now putting her covenant to action. She is holding up everything that she professed about being there for Naomi. And she starts that by finding food in the time of harvest in Bethlehem. And so Ruth, the Moabite, as the text clearly is trying to you know, lean into here, the woman who is not from the land that she is about to step out in and work, sets to find a person that she can convince to allow her to glean among the ears of grain behind the workers. Now, the nature of this request alone de- demonstrates Ruth's commitment to remain steadfast in her covenant. Now, why is this? Well, there's, there's several reasons for this. One, Ruth knows that being steadfast in her covenant is going to require personal risk. She is going to risk her health working in the fields. She's going to risk going alone in a place where many dangers and evils occur. And in many cases, because it's in the fields, occurs unseen. She is going as a Moabite, the self-professed enemy of Israel's people. She's coming as an immigrant, where difficulties and challenges in culture, adaptation, and structural dynamics abound. Ruth's act of courage to go out to fulfill her covenant duties to Naomi is, in essence, she's risking her life to place herself in the line of fire to protect her mother-in-law, whom she loves. You see, Ruth's covenant is not just a nice thing that she believes. It calls her to live out her convictions. And this request to Naomi is not just simply a, a passive request begging Naomi to give her reasons not to go. On the contrary, Naomi is realizing that she can't stop Ruth. So Naomi, in these verses, tells her, go. Now, this gives you a little bit of pause to consider what true covenants of your life looks like in the here and now. What is the risk you are most willing to take right now? And what does it say about what you believe? about the covenants you profess. A professional parachuter, when they jump out of a plane, has this covenantal confession that a piece of fabric will deploy when pulled on and will risk their entire lives upon it. A Christian who covenants with Christ and the church will risk many things in their life. They will risk being called slanderous names. They will risk being treated with contempt. They will risk being labeled unfairly, grossly misunderstood for the sake of walking in Christ's footsteps. So a Christian shouldn't be surprised or offended when such things occur. Rather, like Ruth, they have counted the cost to go out into the world, step out into faith. See, to live in the steadfast means even though that you've jumped out of the plane, as it were, symbolically, and everything around you feels like death, you have confidence. You are able to pursue joy in the free fall because you who have covenanted with Christ knows that the Lord's favor is going to fulfill God's promise to you. So Ruth's remaining steadfast as head to the field is not only just a risk, but it's also a perfect response to God's sovereignty. And that's why the irony, by the way, of the statement that comes in verse 3 should jump out at the page at you. This, the author's force and impact is, is intentional. And she happened to come to the part 
of the field belonging to Boaz happened to come. The, translationally, sort of a wooden phrase is, and wouldn't you know it, Ruth entered into the field of Boaz, right? Uh, the Bible is sometimes delightfully sarcastic, and we have to catch it, and this is one of those moments. The author of Ruth is designated here that, of course, it's not just wouldn't you know it, or it just so happened. It's only the God who is in control of the situation that Ruth is in that leads to Ruth's covenant's promises being fulfilled. Ruth knows that she knows that she needs to find favor with someone in the field, but she trusts in the sovereign God to fulfill those covenant promises she made. So God's control of the situation does not negate the fact that Ruth must go. She must go. And Ruth's actions simultaneously do not negate the fact that God is perfectly in control of her situation. She goes, and God's, God shows favor to her by placing her in Boaz's field. Uh, one of the great false fights in Christian theology is believing that somehow human action, human activity, human responsibility is somehow in competition with divine sovereignty. Uh, and so what tends to happen is that we, we tend to kind of want to totalize one thing or the other. But if you totalize human action or human responsibility, then the weight of the success of God, the weight of, you, of your salvation, well, it falls not on the all-powerful God in the world, but it falls on you. And that pressure and that weight will crush you. But likewise, if you totalize God's sovereignty to wipe out any kind of human activity or responsibility, then perhaps in your zeal to maintain the character of God, to remain preeminent above all things, you will ignore the call and the command of God to act, to go out in faith, to call out injustice, to take risks. You will wait far too long to pursue the calling that God has placed in your life. And you will be rightfully called the frozen chosen. Frozen in place, thinking that you are being pious when actually you're being unbiblical. The great J.I. Packer puts it this way in his excellent book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. I wish I could just read this whole chapter for you, but that would be cheating. Uh, so I'm just only going to read this, this paragraph here. Uh, we shall not oppose divine sovereignty and human responsibility to each other, for the Bible does not oppose them to each other. Nor shall we qualify or modify or water down either of them in terms of the other, for this is not what the Bible does either. What the Bible does is to assert both truths side by side in the strongest and most unambiguous terms as two ultimate facts. This, therefore, is the position that we must take in our own thinking. Charles Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these truth truths to each other. I wouldn't try, he replied. I would never reconcile friends. In other words... Ruth's steadfastness is not an attempt to earn God's favor, but rather it goes hand in hand with the favor of God and his people. God's favor is with the steadfast. And this leads us to our second point here today, that God's favor is toward the sojourner. Uh, now, we have to define this term in Scripture uh, because it, it can often be confused. It can often be put into this bucket of, of, of different terminology, and, and we have to show what the distinctions are in Scripture here. So the sojourner is, is one who is living 
in the Israelite land has, has sort of committed themselves to Israel's God, but comes from a Gentile nation. Often, the sojourner is connected to widows and orphans and particularly the vulnerable, economically, socially, physically, the ones who are at most risk. So the sojourners were allowed by law to participate in Israelite worship, but not necessarily fully uh, into Israelite culture and practice. And so there was this host of verses that was due to the rights of those that were claimed by the sojourner, the way that Israel was called to guard them, protect them, and welcome them. Uh, Sometimes the sojourner is called the stranger or the alien, the one who is visiting from the land, the one who is to be welcomed and cared for, those who are considered outsiders but, but able to walk the lands. However, there is another class of people in the Israelite culture, and that was this term that we translate into the word foreigner, but really that's a really just, it's, it's the closest thing we've got, but it's really not what the word foreigner meant to the Israelite people. All right, so anyone who, in today's terms, will want to point back to Old Testament passages about the foreigner, you know, pastors, politicians, or otherwise, right, who try to use Old Testament verses about the foreigner and equate them today have no idea what they're talking about. The way foreigner was used in biblical literature was those who were committed to the conversion of idol worship, uh, the worship of false gods, uh, the ones who would lead the Israelites astray from the God they had covenanted with. It, it was used to describe a military opponent uh, that sought out Israel's destruction, it was, it was someone who was committed to the cultural, religious, political, and physical annihilation of God's people. So there were prohibitions for the people of God against I, uh, the foreigners, but not, in, again, the way that we use that term today. Against the gods they would bring, against the mentality of the destruction of God's people. So you could see why this simply has no import when you, you try to use Old Testament passages about the foreigner to today's context. Now, now, to be fair, yes, there are those in the world committed to see Christians dead, right? Uh, there, there's, there's martyrs and missionaries who are risking their lives across the world, but this isn't the way right, that we should use the word foreigner in our context. But the distinction was there, so you see, between the sojourner, the stranger, and the alien, and the foreigner. And it was built into the practices of their everyday life. So part of Ruth's steadfastness when she ed- enters into the field is that she understands that when the Israelites look at the color of her skin, see the accent that she speaks, and sees her, Ruth knows not to be naive to understand the difference between Israelite religion and Israelite reality. Although Ruth, by absolute definition, is a sojourner, one who has adopted the faith of Naomi, who lives now in the community, she knows that not every Israelite who confesses and believes in the word of God will treat her like a sojourner. Many of them will treat her like a foreigner. So Ruth is going to ask for permission to glean behind the workers, right? But she doesn't need to ask for that permission. She shouldn't have even been required for her to ask for her permission to do that. If we could have these verses up on the screen, right? These are just some, and and I I know this is a lot to to look at here, but just to kind of show you the overwhelming scriptural evidence of the rights that were due to Ruth 
to be able to glean into the field. Ruth knew that by right she had access to the corners of the field that the gleaners were supposed to have left behind us. This was Israelite religion. But Ruth knew that the Israelite reality, and really the reality of all sin, the reality of xenophobia, the reality of abuse, the reality of misogyny, the reality of those who are greedy and driven by wealth, that not everyone who believes in God allow, will allow her to live out her newly found biblical rights. She knew that with the wisdom of the world around her, that the world, even the world that encompasses quote-unquote God's people, would not be so kind to her. That there would be Israelites who would wrongly assume that she was only out there to destroy Israel. That she was a foreigner who would never be able to accept Israel's God and that were filled with contempt towards her. So Ruth, as unfair as it is her to do so, goes the extra mile. She is not naive to ensure her safety in the field of work by realizing that she needs to find favor in a person who actually believes what they believe about what God says and the promise to protect her. So she awaits the supervisor under Boaz to give her permission because she knows how a Moabite might be treated. This is an important window for Ruth to see that needs to be uh, understanding the instincts that we have today as believers. In short, it's not enough to simply say that just because a person, a church, a school, a company or institution, a political party, simply because we smack the label of Christian on them, that somehow it's the gold standard of excellence simply because it's named that way. We as Christians cannot be so naive in this manner of thinking that just because it, something is called a Christian institution, that it will never be subject to abuse, racism, trauma, sexual sin, or lack of accountability. See, Christians need to be more critical, not less, to call out these people and institutions that hold these values when they screw up. Even in some of the most mundane things of the world, all right, um, you ever notice it's really hard, just instinct as a Christian, to want to criticize Chick-fil-A, right? right? I mean, sometimes my Chick-fil-A is overrated, right? My chicken nuggets are soggy, my fries are burnt, and it's wrong for them to do that, and I should be allowed to say that without fear of retaliation from God's community, that somehow I'm slandering, quote-unquote, God's fast food chain, whoever gave it that title. Right? But on a more serious note, this is important for us today because self-professed Christian leaders, pastors, churches, denominations, act in such a way that is contrary to everything God had told us about how we treat the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, the stranger. And we need to be allowed to be real about the distance between what God has commanded us to live out and how the church is really doing. True religion, as James reminds us, is the fruit to care for its most vulnerable, its most in need, and goes about the actual business of living it out and calling it out. Rather than just simply saying, oh, that's a divisive topic, I don't know. As Paul reminds us in Romans, and as Ruth demonstrates to us here, not everyone who is Israel is actually Israel. And Christians should be mindful of that as we enter out into the world and critical of our own communities. 
And so Ruth is searching for the favor of God here, awaiting someone to see her for who she truly is, a sojourner who is simply looking for her right, her God-given right to glean safely. And here enters Boaz with this knowledge of who she is. She's been given the briefing about her vulnerable social, political, and perceived status. Boaz knows what the word of God claims. And Boaz addresses her with God's favor in ways that goes far and above, beyond the rights of how she was to be treated. First, Boaz says, my daughter, refers to her as one of his family, her Israelite daughter in the faith, sort of the way that we call ourselves in the church, brothers and sisters in Christ. Recognize that even though the term applied to her is a sojourner, she is so much more than that. Second, Boaz is offering her an entourage of other women to glean with her, to offer her social protections from those within Boaz's own working camp. Now, why does he do this? Because he's signaling to mess with Ruth would be to mess with Boaz. Third, perhaps in one of the most profound awarenesses that not all Israelites would treat women that as Israelites should, Boaz favors her with the first recognized policy against sexual harassment of women in the workplace that we see in Scripture. We see God's command of the dignity of the image of God in Genesis 1. Yes, of course. We see the dignity of women protected in various ways throughout the biblical narrative. But the first workplace initiative, right, for the women's protection, a Moabite so- sojourner, was instituted because Boaz knew that Ruth was more vulnerable to such atrocities and unspeakable evils even with those in his own workplace. You see, Boaz doesn't just assume that those in his stead would just treat her right. He makes sure of it. Puts his name behind it. Fourth thing that he provides, just in case everyone missed the message of how Ruth was supposed to be treated, um, he allows her to drink the water where the young man had drawn. Now this is so countercultural, it's worth talking about. Whereas the women were supposed to draw the water for the men in the secular culture of the time, as it was custom, Ruth is given favor that jumps the social status line. She's actually able to drink the water that the men have drawn instead. God's favor towards the sojourner means that Ruth is given far more than she could ever imagine. It is also the very things that she needs for her protection, for her care, for the wings of God to shield her. How would you respond to a kindness like this? Ruth is floored. She cannot even believe why Boaz would do this. Notice her line, why have I found favor in your eyes since I am a foreigner? See, Ruth's expectation of how someone in authority and power that Boaz has would be that she would be viewed as an enemy. And Boaz Though, as you see in this narrative, his worthiness, through his understanding of God's grace, through what he was able to give and provide, treats her like a sojourner, but even with greater grace than what a sojourner is required. 
God's favor on Boaz leads for Boaz to demonstrate God's favor onto others. Boaz uses the blessings he has received from God as a wealthy landowner to bless the most vulnerable and marginalized and oppressed people of his society. And that leads us to see God's favor to the suffering. This is our third point here today. Now, we know who know the end of the story of Ruth may want to jump the storytelling here in rushing to the conclusion that the only reason why Boaz is doing this is because somebody's got a little crush. Boaz is trying a little bit too hard to get her phone number, or if you were born after 1990, right, slide into her DMs, right? right? This, is, this is Boaz, right? Just, just, just kind of, you know, crushing on Ruth a little bit. But see, to, to rush ahead in the story is to almost certainly reread the narrative because we know the ending. It's not the expectation that Ruth would have any interest in him. And in fact, we can see it clearly here in these verses. Why is this? Uh, commentators note that Boaz is first substantially older than Ruth in the narrative, uh, just by his use of my daughter alone. And later on that we see his age and confirmed in such a way that Boaz wouldn't have even considered the possibility that Ruth would even be interested in him. But more importantly is, is Boaz's own status as a worthy man of Israel, right? There would have been societal pressures and expectations for him to marry an Israelite, right? To not be associated with the enemy of the people of God. So Boaz, but, but maybe third here, and this is the most important reason why this isn't just Boaz having a crush. Um, is Boaz's own reasoning here in the passage that we see. Boaz has heard of everything that Ruth has endured for the sake of Naomi and what has happened in her home country and everything that has occurred to bring Ruth to him in this moment. Boaz's kindness extends to Ruth in an overabundant way that lets Ruth know that her story, her pain is seen. It is not ignored. It is recognized and that Ruth is to be cared for within his midst. You see, Ruth's sojourner status would uh, not only be viewed by Boaz as solely as the result of her own individual choices. One could blame Ruth, in essence, for the circumstances that she's in quite a, very uncharitably. Oh, you shouldn't have come into this country. It's your fault for gleaning in these fields. If you get abused by a man, then you should have known better. Boaz understands the factors outside of Ruth's individual choices, the systemic sin that lies even in his own field that would lead to her suffering. And Boaz's heart is moved. It is moved in such a way that leads for him to give glory to God in his speech to Ruth. It is moved for him to explain that God is with her, that God would cover his wings over her in a shield of grace. You know, those of us who have dealt with great suffering over the past several years will not be surprised by Ruth's outpouring of emotion here in this passage. Ruth simply cannot believe that Boaz would do this for her, and yet she is, as she says, comforted by an expression of love that demonstrates that Boaz is a person marked by the kindness of God. And so we are reminded here of the Christian call to the sojourner in the midst of their own suffering. 
And what does it mean to be marked as a people of God, this church, in our posture towards those who are entering into our lands? How we think about them, how we treat them, how we are to care for them, and what does that demonstrate about the God that we believe in? World Relief, an evangelical humanitarian organization with headquarters here right in Baltimore, Maryland, actually, uh, wrote an excellent book. Uh, the authors are Jenny Yang and Matthew Sorens, and it's, it's called Welcoming the Stranger. In it, it shares the story of how the story of immigration in the United States have often led to horrific tragedy, of those fleeing their homelands from war, poverty and scarcity only for these refugees who are given legal asylum in the U.S. to be misrepresented, unprotected, exploited, and cast out. It talks about the direct needs of those that we often overlook, the stranger, the sojourner, the ones who statistically are actually the most likely to receive Christianity and looking for favor for those who are in great need. Perhaps the most poignant chapter is the biblical justification in the book regarded for caring for the sufferings of the sojourner, the biblical warrant for why we should do so. They give this tour de force of scriptural passages, and I'm going to go over these in brief. Deuteronomy 24, 14 to 15, that the sojourner in the land of Israel was to be given prompt payment for work and fair labor treatment. Exodus 20.10, the sojourner's rights to Sabbath rest. Deuteronomy 10.18, the food and clothing that are required for the sojourner. Ezekiel 22.7, Zechariah 7.10, explicit commands against oppression and abuse of the refugee and the sojourner. Deuteronomy 24.19-21, special provisions for the sojourner in, in terms of harvest. Deuteronomy 14.28-29, a special tithe for sojourners in the, in the harvest. Malachi 3.5, judgment against the mistreatment of sojourners, linking them to adult and sorcerers and stern warnings against their injustice. Matthew 25, Jesus' own understanding towards the hungry and the thirsty and those who are in need of clothing and the culmination of all of this. Do you remember what Paul reminds the Ephesians church about their own status prior to meeting Christ in Ephesians 2, 12 through 16? Let's read this. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinance that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That word for alienated and strangers is foreigner. So why does Boaz care so much about Ruth? Why is God's favor on Ruth? It's because you see, we all were once foreigners to the promises of God. We have been brought in to God's family as sojourners who have made our covenant promises to be steadfast to the Lord, who have suffered much 
to be called Christian as we now are. And as Peter reminds us in his letters, that we are now strangers and aliens in a foreign land. We were given God's favor through the Christ who has experienced everything that we have just read in these 13 verses. Christ is both Ruth and Boaz in this passage. The one who remains steadfast in the promise to redeem his family. The sojourner who comes down from heaven into Nazareth. The one who suffers greatly giving his body and his life to the cross for our sin and our shame so that we might be given the righteousness of God, so that we might be restored in our fellowship with him. And God's favor was upon Christ in that moment and to his people, that we have received new life in his name, that Christ is Boaz, calling us into his spiritual family, who protects us from all enemies, even enemies from within, and gives us a kindness that we could not even imagine, a kindness that leads us to repentance, a kindness because the favor of God has so comforted us that all we can do is fall before this Christ in worship and in praise. Church, The gospel reminds us today of God's favor who looks at us not as the enemy foreigner, but as someone who is a part of his kingdom. That because of Christ, you are loved, you are protected, you are cared for, your sufferings are seen, your steadfastness is not a waste, your life is meaningful, no matter what lot society tells you that you have. My prayer is that you would all continue to see God's favor in your life, maybe even in your current struggle, and that this favor would change everything, that you would see Jesus, that you would respond in faith to him, that you would worship him. Look to Christ, your steadfast, sojourning, suffering Savior. Let's pray together.